Everybody, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact all of us. We're hopefully going to give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. Hi, David. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? Uh, I will discuss that in a second. Anna Vicino, you good? I'm doing amazing, but it sounds like you got a little uh, spilkus. A thing. And I'm, I'm Peter Tilden with COVID. I got hit with COVID this week. I tried to avoid it. My wife had it for about a week and a half. I wasn't cavalier. I was careful. And we kind of quarantined but and, and checked with David every day. We're good about it, whatever. And boom, I got hit. But my question for you, David, is I didn't take Paxlovid because when I tested, it was so, I said, I did a drop of the test and it looked like somebody wrote the number 11. Both lines were so, <laughs> so solid that I knew that my viral load was high. And you always said, take it before. It's got to be taken before then, or it doesn't really do its job. My question for you is whether I took Paxlovid or not, I'm curious because people are getting it again. So number one, what's the strain that's going around? And number two, can you take Paxlovid? Is it like an antibiotic that each time you take it, it diminishes um, its effect? Can you use it in unlimited amount? Can you take it nine times in three years? So what's the deal with Paxlovid? So, Peter, you may have misunderstood me because you should take it the minute you know you have COVID. And that may be a test. That may be knowing what your symptoms are and not denying symptoms. Because a lot of people just think, well, this is a cold or I've got allergies or right. whatever. But the main reason, and you do want to start it early, because if you start it early, you then stop the production of the virus, you minimize the viral load, and you get better. And not only that, but people that start Paxlovid at, at the appropriate time, they don't get long COVID. This is a huge issue. So going forward, if this happens again, and there are, there are two new strains that have been around since the mid-spring. In the fall, we are getting the right vaccine that will cover these strains. So stay tuned. But the next vaccine that comes out is going to be an appropriate vaccine. And I encourage everybody listening to get it. And Paxlovid you can take repeatedly. Yes, you can keep taking it. All right. And some people are complaining about Paxlovid, saying the symptoms are hard. Somebody had heart palpitations from it. The taste is awful. It made somebody else throw up. I'm just hearing all these nightmare stories about Paxlovid. The taste is awful. It's like eating hubcaps. But the other symptoms may be from COVID. And the reality is, do you want to take the Paxlovid and stop the virus? Or do you want to roll the dice and let the virus go forward and potentially do other bad things? So I, I'm a very strong believer in Paxlovid. All right. So that's the issue. Let's get to our questions today. Anna's got the first one. Okay, today's episode, by the way, Peter, I'm glad you're recovering quickly, despite you're not, you just, you know what, you're brave, you're not using the drugs, you're healing it naturally. I love it. Here is what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, item number one, chronic use of chronic, overuse of marijuana, is it causing mental illness? A study came out. And then item number two, and I love this, you know, I love a feud. Who does it better? Younger doctors or older doctors? Y'all duke it out. Can't wait to hear about that one. Pretty fascinating. In our, this just happened, I, this blows me away and it's very complicated. So David's going to have to explain it because I read 12 pages of this and I have no idea what it is other than a gene editing treatment that looks like it can treat so many illnesses once it's perfected, that this could be one of the biggest breakthroughs that we've ever mentioned. 
And then uh, we have a question for Dr. Kipper from a, a female listener who wants to talk about the latest breakthroughs in ovarian cancer. So that's what we'll be discussing. I guess we should kick off with number one. All right. The chronic use of the chronic overuse. Is this is this is a study that came out and I'm sure it's going to, you know, rattle our friends who love the Mary Jane. But what what's the deal with this study? Is it really causing mental illness? This was a Swedish study, very interesting, and what they did was they wanted to see if marijuana, overuse of marijuana, had any negative consequences. And what, what they did, they took the entire population of Denmark over age 16, there were 6.5 million people in this study, from 1995 to 2021, and they examined their medical records. And they looked for associations of mental illness with substance abuse issues. And what they found was that people that overuse or abuse marijuana are twice as likely to later develop depression and four times higher to develop bipolar disease and psychosis. They found the risk higher in men. It was higher, of course, with the greater intake. And then the question became, is this an association because people that have mental illness and aren't feeling well and have behaviors that are troublesome? Are they self-soothing with drugs or is it causative? And the results of the study indicate that this was more likely causative and not just an association. This brings up some interesting concerns. I mean, first of all, we all know how at one point cigarettes were considered harmless. Look where that went. There is now this story, and is this a similar story where we're going to find out 10 years from now or 10 minutes from now that this is really terrible. But if you look at marijuana use and abuse, 10% of people that are using marijuana are abusing marijuana. There's some gender differences. Men have a higher prevalence of being abusers, whereas females have a higher likelihood of getting mental health issues. And we're concerned because, first of all, it's legal in 23 states and all of Canada um, and these, there are studies that are legitimate studies that link marijuana abuse to schizophrenia in men in their 20s. I read an interesting article that during the pandemic, there was a 214% increase in emergency room visits with kids under age 12 for marijuana-related issues. So it's common use. It's out there. Most of us think that it's really benign, but these studies are now starting to trickle down that maybe not. David, it's, it's really concerning for me because it's like the, the green light has gone off at the Indy 500 where it's okay to do and ha-ha and joking and every movie you see, and I, I feel like I'm 100 years old and being you know, a stick in the mud, but it, it seems like it's so innocuous and so innocent and, and so um, safe that go for it, you know? And I know a lot of people, look, I started to medicate during COVID because it's tough days, we're going through tough stuff. And I can tell you, I don't have an addictive personality. I don't do drugs, I don't smoke, I don't drink, not because I'm a good guy, I just don't. And the, the, the pot started going from bedtime to dinner time, to afternoon time, to noon time. Very easy to rationalize this. And because it's so easy to get, and because it's talked about so innocently, I felt it. I felt that I was going down this path and continue to, and I'm not an addictive personality. I can't imagine a 20-some-year-old 
who's facing challenges today in this world who can get it readily and goes for it and his friends are doing it, how easy it would be to abuse this and overuse it. And I don't know what overuse even is anymore. I know people smoke all day. Well, overuse is what you just said. When you go from doing this at night to when you wake up in the morning and you're doing it during the day, but there's a reason for this. And it's the same reason that people have addiction to other drugs. There's a tolerance that develops. So you have innate marijuana THC receptors in your system. And those receptors, over time, they dumb down a little bit. So you need a higher dose to create the same effect. The body makes more of these receptors, and more of those receptors all want to be fed. And pretty soon you're in this cycle where you're smoking all day. So there is a reason for that. That's how that happens. But what is all the talk about it being a plant and being natural, you know? Like, you can still get addicted to it, you know? Well, heroin comes from a poppy seed, so there's my answer to that. (laughs) That's true. Is there a way to ingest marijuana that is safer? Like as opposed to smoking it, you could have the edible or is there is it any way to take it? it all could lead to this outcome? That's a great question. If you are smoking the flower, you're damaging your lung. If you're doing the edibles, you don't have the same issue because it goes through the GI tract. Uh, a lot of people are vaping now, but what they found in the vape was, you know, it's, it's toxic. There's a vitamin E acetate that's in the vape, and that's toxic to the lung and has caused some very serious lung disease. So is it, is it safe? Not 100%. I think recreational use, we haven't seen these negatives. But as I said, 10% of people that start using marijuana are going to become overusers, abusers, and they're the ones that this sweetest study was referring to. What's the repair ratio? Like somebody for me, if I do it for three years, four years, and I'm I'm smoking constantly to my lungs for the intake, for the receptors, and then I stop. Is it like smoking where your system repairs itself over time? We think so. And again, we haven't seen the same effects that smoking gives us with lung cancer, bladder cancer, COPD, heart disease. We haven't seen that yet. Maybe we will, but we haven't. So yes, your body repairs itself. I'm really worried for 20-somethings because that's where... And in schizophrenia, I noticed in in researching this, that's when most schizophrenia starts to to present is in 20s? Yes, that's about the age that it shows up. And why do you think that? Do they know why? I think there are a lot of reasons. Some of it is hormonal because it does start showing up in, in you know, adolescence. Uh, I think there may be some stress effect that triggers some issues. There certainly are genetic effects that do this. I don't think we have all the answers to that, but that is a very definite uh, association. All right, moving on. Like I mentioned earlier, I love a feud especially a celebrity feud. So I feel like Kipper, you need to pick a doctor who you're going to feud with, because I think that we need to make this really exciting. Younger doctors, older doctors, who does it better? Who wore it better? This is a very common question that we get, doctors get all the time. And people will say, gee, are you retiring? Or do I trust that person because they're fresh out of medical school? So this is an ongoing debate. Who are the better doctors, the younger, newer doctors or the older doctors? Peter, what do you think? Believe it or not, I do some prep for the show. So I kind of have 
a, a sense of what it is. But I was a bit surprised, although the reasoning makes sense. So I'll, I'll let I'll let you present because it is kind of it's kind of an interesting scenario. And it's broken up, right, David, into internists, hosp- specifically hospital internists, not general P- GPs like you. So the study looked at people that were hospitalized over age 65, and they looked at 7,000 patients. So it was a pretty decent study. And they picked the hospitalists because they're the people that manage the medical illnesses in a hospital. Most hospitalists are internists. Some are general practitioners, family practitioners. Most are internists. And they compared this to surgeons. And surgeons in this setting, these are not generally patients choosing a surgeon These are patients that get admitted to the hospital, Uh, they have an acute surgical problem, and the hospital arranges for the surgeon. So it was very interesting what these results showed. And in a nutshell, it showed that surgeons were like fine wine. They got better as they got older. Internists were like uh, leftover fish. They, They did worse the longer they went. And there, there are certainly reasons for this. I mean, the, the obvious reasons are that surgeons get muscle memory. They're doing these procedures over and over again. They've done enough procedures so they can plan out a good strategy for their surgeries. And they've dealt with enough complications because of the volume of surgeries that they know how to respond. And the biggest problem for internists is that they didn't keep up. The older internists were not current. They weren't current with the literature, uh, with the technology, with the medications. So that was the basis of how they interpreted this and why, why this is so. There are some very interesting differences between older and, doc- and younger doctors. First of all, the doctor-patient relationship, which was alive and well when I was learning to be a doctor, is gone now. There's no way you can do that in a six-minute visit. And doctors are not oriented now when they come out of training to invest in that way. There's, there's, that speaks to the lifestyle issue. Younger doctors are much more interested in having a, a good, healthy lifestyle. I certainly don't blame them. Uh, they look for their vacations. They look for their no scheduled work days off, whereas the older doctors, we just look forward to Wednesdays when we could take Wednesdays off. And since I started practice, I've maintained that, although that goes out the window. Uh, There are medical legal issues that are different. When I was growing up in medicine, we didn't have these kinds of pressures. Uh, It wasn't until the mid-70s that the medical legal issues started ramping up. There was no internet for the older doctors. Now there's internet, so there's more communication, not only between doctor and patient, but between other doctors, so there's more information. And the diagnostic protocols are different. Without having CAT scans and MRIs and sophisticated blood tests, someone came in with a problem, you had to think it through. Your algorithms were from your training and they were much more complicated. Now, everything is by an algorithm. If you come in with this symptom, then you look at this, then you look at that. If it's this, you go to here and so it's very different. We, we also have an issue now, thank goodness, where there's diversity. When I was, you know, 100 years ago going through medical school, all the doctors were male and Caucasian. 
now we have a diverse group of doctors and we know from a million different studies, let alone just experience that the diversity is very healthy and important because not all patients are white and male. And so diseases are different, different cultures and the exchange. So there are these big differences. The shocking thing for me was, because I know one of the surgeons who you know at, at Cedars, and he's one of the top guys in heart surgery. And it's funny because he's honest about it. He, he's one of the premier doctors that you go to and hope to get if you can do heart surgery. But he said, I got to tell you, as good as I am, you see the younger guys doing the robotic surgeries. And it's not that I can't do them well and I'm not really competent and good at it, but they grew up with robotics. They grew up with video games. They grew up with that technology. It's like a, like a duck to water. They just know it better. So wouldn't that enter into the surgical numbers in that the younger surgeons would be doing it better? Or is robotics still new, so new that that doesn't impact this, a study like this? No, it, it does, Peter. But robotics are somewhat limited. There, there are only certain surgeries where they apply. I, I refer commonly to a urologist who is the best robotic surgeon in the community. Why is that? He was a video game champion in college. So to your point, they do. They grow up this way. He was really a video. Does he have? Yes. Does he, does he have his medical degree, his surgical degree, and then his awards and his winnings? <laughs> high score. High score. I asked him one day. I said, "You know, why is it that I find you to be, you know, a step above?" And he laughed and he said, "Tell me, he was a champion in his college." When you go to a surgeon for robotic surgery, like for urology. You want to know the school they graduated from and their high score <laughs> on, <laughs> on Grand Theft Auto. But that does bring up an interesting point. So if you're going to choose a general practitioner or an internist, you might want to ask them how they keep up. What, what, what are the things that you do to keep current? Do you go to conferences? Do you read journals? And, and for the surgeon, you want to ask, how many of these surgeries have you done? And you can also ask a surgeon, which I think is really healthy, and I encourage my patients to do this, can I speak to one or two of your patients that has had this exact surgery? You're telling me this is my experience, but I want to know from a patient's perspective, what's really going to be my experience? So you should ask your doctor these questions, whether they're surgeons or internists or specialists, it's okay to ask those questions, and I think it's important. The most amazing thing that I experienced that was really moving for me as a father was when my daughter went through heart surgery, when she had her um, valve replacement, that the doctor who she used, the first thing he did when he diagnosed and said she needed surgery was put her in touch with several people her, her age, around her age, who had had the same surgery. I even tear up thinking about it because it was so traumatic as a dad sitting there watching your kid go under and be on a heart bypass. But not only a couple of them who had a really good experience, but one who had a tough time with it. And she got to talk to two or three people. It made such a difference for her. In, in She related to them. She became friendly with them. She asked them anything she was concerned about. And it made such a difference in her head going under for the surgery. And if you think about it, most people that are going for some surgery will ask for a second opinion. Well, why not ask a patient for the second opinion as to how that doctor performed and what that procedure really was? So right. there's a, 
I always ask my patients to check with their surgeons to see if they can speak to somebody that's gone through it. It's very reassuring for the patient. And if a doctor isn't willing to do that, well, there's your second opinion. Let's move on to something that is stunning. I don't understand it. Usually I have a pretty good grasp of what I'm reading. David, this one threw me except for what it is. It's this week's, this just happened. And it's about gene editing treatment. And what I got is that we're waiting for regulatory approval soon for a treatment that could be a treatment to a, a, a plethora, a myriad of different medical maladies like lowering cholesterol, like um, genetic inconsistencies. And I did see that even in, um, was it in, hold on, where did I read it? Where was it? That even in China, they already did modification of fetuses to prevent HIV in the fetuses. The guy got arrested, the doctor got arrested, but they know how to do it. That's the insanity of this, but it seems very complicated. This is a very exciting area. I, I love these stories, and there's hundreds of these stories about gene editing. And gene editing started in 2012. I mean, it was over 10 years ago that people were doing this. And, and in a nutshell, what this is, is that they can now, when I say they, I'm talking about smart doctors. They can go in and they can go into a cell and they a protein was developed in 2012 that would go in and actually splice the DNA. And so if there's a mutation and the mutation is at a specific spot uh, in that gene, they can go in and they can splice at that spot and correct the problem. So for instance, sickle cell. Sickle cell, by the way, is the one disease now that is getting FDA approval for gene editing. And in sickle cell, what happens is that when the baby is in utero, they have hemoglobin. Those are the red cells that carry oxygen. That is called fetal hemoglobin. When the baby is born, the minute it's born, comes out, it switches to adult hemoglobin. Now, in adult hemoglobin, there are people that have this genetic mutation that makes those cells, which are normally round, turns them into a sickle shape. And that sickle shape, as it travels through the bloodstream, it's bouncing up against the internal part of the blood vessel, and it's creating a lot of pain, and it doesn't carry oxygen well. And these poor people are, are doomed to a life of being anemic, of having horrible pain that requires opiates. And so here's what they did with sickle cell. They were able to go in and find that process, and they decided instead of trying to fix the sickle cell, they went in and figured out how to turn back on the gene that made the fetal hemoglobin. So now the baby's born and is making fetal hemoglobin, which takes over from the sickled cells that, that they get as an adult, so that you can turn on and turn off different genes that are creating a mutation and it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the study in China, Peter, that you mentioned is very, very interesting. So this was a doctor that took two parents that both had HIV, both, both had AIDS, he took, and they wanted a child. He took the sperm and the egg 
in a petri dish, did this outside the body in a in a lab. This was civilization, and he was able to find the area of the virus where the HIV attached to the virus and got into the cell. He was able to manipulate, edit the genes with a protein, with these proteins that invalidated the receptors. So these receptors that would normally latch on to the HIV virus couldn't do that because the receptors didn't work. So the virus couldn't get into the cells. So he did it in the father and the mother, and these children were born, three of them, and there was no HIV. And he was put in jail for several years and fined quite a bit of money. But they've now come out in Florida. This just happened. In Florida, they found the same kind of theory where they found a protein that would do exactly the same thing. And they did this in monkeys, and now it's being done in humans. But the uh, genetics and the profiles of these animals, like us, it looks like this is going to work. And they work by the protein and validating those receptor sites so that the virus can't get into the cells. And that's going to be the basis of the HIV vaccine. What's the depth and, and breadth of this kind of treatment? Because it suggested, even though this was way above my pay grade, that all kinds of DNA irregularities, all kinds of stuff that's handed down when you say, oh, you're going to get this potentially this cancer because it's genetic, that they'll be able to identify that and potentially fix it before it even crops its head. Exactly right, Peter. And half of these studies now and half, half of these clinical trials are about cancer. So here's an interesting story. A woman has cancer. She goes in for therapy and they decide to take the cancer cell and they look to see what the proteins are around the cancer cell. And now they edit a gene to make a protein that will invalidate the cancer protein that will kill. They, they put this on a T cell. The T cells are the immune cells that go and fight these cancers. So now they have genetically altered the T cell to go after this very specific cancer. And it knocks out, this is called CAR-T therapy. Anyone that wants to look at that is fascinating. And what's more interesting about this is that these CAR-T cells that have been genetically edited, after they've done their job and they've killed these cancer cells, the body now sees these CAR-T cells as foreign and the immune cells come and attack them and knock them out. So what did these gene editors do? They, they added something to the adjusted T cells so that when that happened, when the immune system started coming after them, they had one more edited gene that would block the immune cells from killing them. Is this going to be the biggest breakthrough? I, I think so. You mentioned cholesterol. So they, they took this, this was done in New Zealand, I think, and they edited liver cells. Liver cells make the cholesterol. And there's a condition called uh, hypercholesterolemia. It's where people just make too much cholesterol. And they edited that gene. So they knocked out the production of cholesterol. And one shot brought their levels down by 60%. And this is going to affect 
200 million people. So they're, they're doing this with diabetes. In answer to your question, they're doing this with heart disease. So within 10 years, and maybe much sooner, we're going to be seeing very different therapies than we have now. The younger doctors will know all about it. I promise you that. I have questions about designer babies. Can we make them with this CRISPR technology? Because plastic surgeons, bye, you're going to not have a job because we're going to make babies who don't need nose jobs. That's what's going to happen. Well, there's one application. We were actually going for the disease part of this, but absolutely. I lo- but when we're done with all that, when we've cured all the diseases, now we make everybody pretty. Hey, Anna, it's valid. It's outside of the box. No, I just find this interesting in the editor thing. I Because you keep saying CRISPR editor, and I'm having these visions of these guys with film, you know, with the with the little monocle thing that they're looking at the film and they're, they have the cigarette hanging out of their mouth. But really, like, what level of precision and microscopicity is this CRISPR thing using? It's got to be so technical. Well, if they can go inside a sperm cell and an egg cell, you bet. This is pretty sophisticated equipment. It's not the and, stuff. And, and speaking of sophisticated, yeah. can ChatGP tell us if there's actually a word called microscopicity? <laughs> Thank you for recognizing that I just forwarded the English language to a new place it's never Micro, been. Microscopicity. Let's remember that. The microscopicity of it all. <laughs> I love it. I just, I want, I want CRISPR. I want it. I need help with some celiac. I would like um, maybe some wrinkle help. I mean, if I could put, if I could bump something up in the queue, I would never want to surpass metabolic disease, cancer, heart disease. I want to get, and uh, Alzheimer's. I would like to get those all solved. But then if we could get to autoimmune, we will, that I would really We will it. be approaching celiac disease. We'll be approaching cystic fibrosis. These diseases that previously had no real cures, we were treating symptoms. This was all right in front of us. Let's get to, hey, what about me? This week, the question is from Marie, and she's got a question for you, David, about ovarian cancer. Hey, Dr. Kipper, ovarian cancer runs in my family, and I was wondering if maybe you guys, the scientists, doctors, have developed some sort of a a test to determine if uh, someone is predisposed to getting ovarian cancer? Any uh, new breakthroughs would really be helpful if you could let us all know. Thank you very much. Marie, thank you. This is a very important question, and it's important because ovarian cancer is the number one gynecologic cancer, and it's the most lethal cancer. And probably three-quarters of the people with ovarian cancer are diagnosed late. And so the whole idea is to try to diagnose people early. So we do have some biomarkers. We have a CA125. We have the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that I think people have heard of. The CA125 is a good indicator, but it doesn't show up until later in the, in the illness. There are false positives uh, for the CA125. When this first came out, people were lining up for this. And smoking is one of those false positives. Uh, just being on your menstrual cycle can make that positive and having some other inflammatory issue can make it positive. So a lot of people that were getting these positive CA-125s 
were panicked and going through these workups, we couldn't find anything. So it's definitely had its limitations. The imaging studies that we have are okay, but they don't pick this stuff up. Those are the CTs, the ultrasounds, and the biopsies. They don't pick this stuff up until there are enough cells and a big enough mass that we can see them. But there was, Maria, to your question, there's research now in another known biomarker that's been around a while. It's called the HE4, and that also has some false positives, same issues with estrogen, smoking. But when they combined the HE4 biomarker with the CA125, the specificity of diagnosing ovarian cancer early was tremendous, very high percentage. So there is now, if you go to your doctor and you're getting a, a positive 120 CA125, or more importantly, if you're high risk, if you have it in your family, you have a positive BRCA gene, you, you want to know early on if this is going to be a problem. So I'm sure your doctor is, uh, pick a younger doctor that's up to date with all this and, um, you know, ask them to add an HE4 biomarker to the CA125 biomarker. And that will give you some reassurance one way or the other. Um, you know, we, we talked about the fallopian tube, removing the fallopian tube. So for, for these genetically uh, induced ovarian cancers, we know that there are lesions in the fallopian tube. That's the tube that's between the ovary and the uterus. That's where the egg travels. And that's where ovarian cancer starts in these genetic illnesses. So we know, for instance, that if you are BRCA1, BRCA2, now if you are a CA125 positive, HE4 positive, your risks go way up. And if you are postmenopausal, have your ovaries out. If you're premenopausal, just pay very close attention to this and make the appropriate reproductive decisions, but know that you're at high risk. So this does give us some window into early diagnosis. So you're saying if you get these markers, you need to have a serious conversation about removing your ovaries so and fallopian tubes. So then would you just adjust hormonal therapy at that point? Because don't, don't you leave in the ovaries to because they still produce a little bit of estrogen? You leave in the ovaries if you are before your menopause. Menopause in American women is uh, average age is 51. Your mother's time when she got menopause is when you're going to get menopause. And, but if you're after menopause, uh, you can take the ovaries. And the, ov the ovaries, the estrogens, remember now, they're not really producing estrogen anymore. And the estrogen is very important for keeping your blood vessels good, your heart good, your bones good, your brain functioning at its best. So the hormonal benefit of having these estrogens is incredible. So if you are premenopausal and you're in a position where you can hold on to them, you should. Yes, that was great. I, I just wanted to put in a request for a future episode that we go through more menopausal stuff and HRT. I know we've touched on it from time to time, but it would be cool to do a comprehensive thing. But let's do a recap of what we discussed today. First of all, the um, chronic use of the chronic leading to mental illness was a very sobering 
fact to hear? So if you see yourself amping up your intake and it's no longer recreational, know that there are some mental health issues that are in your potentially in your path. And then we discussed, I, I still don't think we picked a, a young whippersnapper for you to have a feud yet with, but I would like for that to happen. Young doctors versus old doctors. What are we doing? Who's, who's the big winner? I think they both have advantages. And I think that you should interview your doctors for any of these questions that you have about how they're keeping up, how many of these operations they've done. Don't be afraid to talk to your doctor about those questions, as opposed to saying, I want to get a second opinion. Get the second opinion from the doctor with that question. Gene editing is right around the corner in a big way. It can alter a lot of illnesses that we're dealing with today. It is our future. It's also our present. And it's very exciting. And ovarian cancer, new biomarkers. HE4, new biomarker. Add that to your CA125 for those of you that are at high risk and have a family history. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can head over to bedsidematters.org, write us a note, leave us a message, and your question just might be answered by the good Dr. Kipper himself. I'd like to thank Dr. Kipper. Make sure you check out his new book, Override. It's all about how we are biologically and psychologically predisposed to perform a certain way. This puts you in touch with that and allows you to actually understand it and change your behavior. Anna Vicino, she's got a great site, annavicino.com, and it's a website that offers recipes, sauces, spices, her cookbooks, all gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb eating. Go to annavocino, V-O-C-I-N-O.com. Producer Laurie, thank you for all the hard work you're doing, keeping us in line. And everybody listening, thank you for listening to Bedside Matters. If you're sick and tired, of being sick and tired. We're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday. So follow us, like us, have a great week and stay healthy. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. Is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.